Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. I'm going to tease the next show really quickly. My guest is retired Superior Court Judge and Boardwalk Empire author, Nelson Johnson. Look forward to that one, one of two parts. I have a big show for you guys today. I've got four cases that dropped in the second half of March. 2021. And more importantly, we've got a nominee to the New Jersey Supreme Court to replace Justice Lavecchia. She is Rachel Wayner Apter. For those of us used to the U.S. Supreme Court nominee fights that play out in the partisan news and uh, involve searching back to a person's childhood where they mean in the sandbox. It seems there will be none of this with nominee Apter. Instead, she is receiving praise from every corner, from academia, from law, from clergy. I have spent a little time doing some internet digging on my own just to see what this young person, age 40, has uh, accomplished and uh, what her background entails. Here you go. I suppose anybody would believe this as a highlight of a person's career. Certainly, nominee Apter has said as much that she served as clerk to Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. That followed clerkships in the district court and federal circuit court. On the education side, a perfect 1600 on her SAT, Penn undergrad, and Harvard Law School. Her practice has been a mixture in a short period of time, corporate practice, working on appellate and Supreme Court cases, staff attorney for the ACLU, and service as a New Jersey Deputy Attorney General, including Director of the Division of Civil Rights. Nominee Apter's name appears in 34 reported state or federal opinions. Those opinions include cases like Apple v. Samsung, Masterpiece Cake Shop. You may remember the cake shop owner that refused to bake and decorate a cake for a gay couple, and a ton of work regarding immigration cases, the forcible separation of immigrant families at the Mexican border, Dreamers, DACA, and the like. I'm not sure how Rachel Wayner Apter has put all these accomplishments into her relatively short career, but it seems to be a testament to brains and energy, and I don't think anybody would complain if we get a new New Jersey Supreme Court justice with brains, energy, and loads of appellate and Supreme Court bona fides. So by the time this podcast drops, we may have a new justice. It may very well be that Justice Apter 
is through part of the Senate's process. I shouldn't say I shouldn't say we'll have a new justice, but we'll certainly have a nominee as uh, Justice Lavecchia has a few more months to go. But I believe between the governor, the Senate, and the timing of uh, Justice Lavecchia's retirement, that uh, this should all be put together in plenty of time so we don't have a vacancy we had under uh, Governor Chris Christie. We had a long vacancy uh, filled by Justice Tim Pone, who retired uh, last year to make the vacancy for Justice Pierre Louis. Let's get to our four cases. Three are criminal cases. Two involve the right to counsel, and one is an unemployment case that also had a criminal component to it. State v. Luis Masonet, M-A-I-S-O-N-E-T, Chief Justice Rabner, Lone Dissent by Justice Pierre Louis. In this case, the defendant walked up to the boyfriend of his former girlfriend, now soon to be father of his girlfriend's baby, shoots him in the chest, murdering him. He then goes and sticks the fi- his gun in the face of the girlfriend, threatens her, and then shoots himself in the chest. An off-duty police officer is present for this. This is occurring in a mall. The gun is wrestled away from the defendant. The defendant is indicted, and a trial date is set one year later. During the pending year, the defense received a plea offer from the prosecutor's office that was declined. And on the day of trial, the defendant made an oral application to adjourn the trial so that he could switch attorneys. He alleged that he had been represented by an attorney from the public defender's office and that she had acted ably thus far, but it was his understanding that the public defender had had only a limited number of trials and therefore he wanted to get a new lawyer. The request, though, was really a request to begin a research project. That is, the defendant was asking if he could call his family to see if his family could raise money to hire a private lawyer. He had no other lawyer lined up. He had no funds lined up. In fact, really the request was a plan to make a plan, all coming after the defendant had had a year notice. The trial court wasn't having it, and ultimately the Supreme Court wasn't having it either. The court was a little concerned with the brevity of the conversation and the colloquy between the trial court judge and the defendant. Indeed, it was jury selection day. Jurors were waiting. The state was ready to go. Seemingly, his own attorney from the public defender's office was ready to go. It was only the defendant and his secret fears that his attorney lacked sufficient experience to try the case. Chief Justice Rabner reaffirms the concept that the right to counsel is not absolute. It does not mean every defendant gets the lawyer that they want. That is not the standard. The standard is competent counsel 
to protect the rights of the accused. The court relied on the appellate division case from 1985, State v. Ferguson, it's F-U-R-G-U-S-O-N, that had previously analyzed the procedure necessary to evaluate a request for an adjournment of a criminal trial. The inquiry should include the proposed length of the requested delay, any prior delays or continuances, a balancing act of the inconvenience to the litigants, counsel, experts, witnesses, the court, whether there were legitimate reasons for this adjournment request or whether this request was dilatory, purposeful, or contrived, whether the defendant contributed to the reasons that an adjournment was now necessary, whether competent counsel was lined up to try the case. Here, an undercurrent, an obvious undercurrent, was that the defendant had no one lined up who could get the file and prepare for trial within a reasonable period of time. This was not adequately explored by the trial judge, according to the opinion, but nonetheless, it was obvious that there would be considerable delay should the defendant's request be granted. Other factors include the complexity of the case and ultimately whether the defendant would suffer identifiable prejudice. Uh, here, the court was clear that last-minute adjournments based upon very thin ac accusations or very thin concerns that counsel was not competent to handle the trial uh, were insufficient. It's really a case of cold feet. In her lone dissent, Justice Pierre-Louis expressed that the defendant should have been given an opportunity to seek other counsel as he lacked confidence in his appointed public defender and also expressed that under the Ferguson factors that the trial court judge uh, had made a rather thin record uh, in protecting the defendant's right to counsel. My two cents is a throwback to the 1992 movie, My Cousin Vinny, literally a movie shown to law students on how to examine a witness, specifically the defendant, co-defendant of um, Ralph Macchio, that is Stan Rothenstein, played by Mitchell Whitfield, after his attorney offered a disastrous opening argument and Joe Pesci, variously known in the movie as Vincent Gambini, Jerry Callow, Jerry Gallo, makes a fantastic turnaround from his tomfoolery to demonstrating his capabilities as a trial attorney. Stan Rothenstein yells out, I want him. So in the middle of his trial, he fires his appointed attorney and is ably represented by the Joe Pesci character. The problem for the defendant, Louis Masonette, is he didn't have his Joe Pesci character lined up. I suspect had the defendant done the legwork, raised the funds, and 
had a competent private attorney lined up to undertake the case, the court may have at least entertained the application and gotten a clear read on how long it would take for defense counsel to be ready to try the case. Staying with the right to counsel, let's go to State v. Outland, O-U-T-L-A-N-D, Justice Pierre Louis, writing for a unanimous New Jersey Supreme Court. The defendant goes into McDonald's with a mask on. This is pre-COVID, where wearing masks uh, was deemed scary going into a retail outlet. Him and a fellow conspirator have fake guns. The defendant is quickly identified as a former co-worker of the McDonald's employees. And one of them points out the fact that he's got a fake gun. At that point, the defendant takes his mask off, proposes to hug the manager, and uh, sort of in a no-blood, no-foul manner, give back what had been stolen and call it a day. Well, not so easy. The defendant is tried and convicted, represented by appointed counsel. The defendant had requested to represent himself, had made somewhat of an impassioned plea to the trial court judge, and indeed had filed a motion two or three months prior to the trial date requesting that he be able to represent himself. The motion was not heard until the eve of trial, and the trial court judge denied the defendant's application to represent himself. He had public defender, and the colloquy between the judge and the defendant amounted to the judge asking the defendant if he understood rules of evidence and jury selection procedures, court rules, etc. Of course, the defendant was unable to impressed the judge with his knowledge of the ins and outs of the process, so the judge denied the request. The Supreme Court remands this case, sends it back uh, with the defendant as as his own counsel. Indeed, the defendant had written his own appellate petitions, his own motion, as I indicated before, and had at least a passing understanding of his rights at trial, he certainly understood that he had the right to be self-represented. It seems to me the judge was trying to dissuade this defendant from representing himself in an important criminal matter. And my two cents, the judge was hoping that by a hard quizzing of the defendant's knowledge that he may relent and go along with representation by the public defender's office. The standard expressed here by the Supreme Court is different than what was applied by the trial court judge. The Supreme Court reminds the trial court that it is the job of the trial court to educate and instruct rather than quiz on knowledge. So, it would it would seem that If the court laid out the steps and procedures for the defendant to walk through the trial, that would have been sufficient. The defendant's 
rights to represent himself would be honored, and the court's role in administering justice and and avoiding a trial turning into a mockery or a one-sided affair would have also been well satisfied. Next one, criminal case, State v. Dumbrack and Rodriguez, unanimous New Jersey Supreme Court, opinion by Justice Pierre Louis. The question is, what obligation does the trial court have in instructing the jury on a lesser included charge? Here, among the numerous charges, gun charges, illegal weapon charges, was robbery. At the charge conference, one of the defense attorneys offered, what about lesser included offenses? Or words to that effect. The court, off the cuff, said, I don't see it here. I don't see theft as a lesser included offense. And indeed, once the jury charges were put together with finality, no one objected. A note on trial strategy mentioned in the opinion. Had these defendants succeeded on their self-defense claims, they would have, may have, likely would have been entitled to a full acquittal. Had they sought a lesser included offense charge for theft, they might have beaten the robbery and then been convicted of theft. So, It is presumed to be a matter of trial strategy whether a defendant seeks a jury charge on the lesser included offenses. Here, the trial court did not find that the case looked like a theft at all, and the Supreme Court instructs really the defense lawyers and the trial courts to deal with this lesser included offense issue as something that would need to jump off the page. So here, there is no need for the trial court to scour the record or sift through the transcripts to cobble together a jury charge for a lesser included offense that no one asked for. In dicta, the court did indicate that There may be a circumstance where it is error for the court to not sua sponte issue a charge for a lesser included offense, but going back to some of this active language that I like, the trial court does not have to scour or sift, and if a lesser included offense needs to be part of the charge, it needs to jump off the page. Last, certainly not least, Haley v. Board of Review, Justice Solomon writing for the court with a lone dissent from Justice Albin that I'll get to. Haley was a maintenance worker at Garden State Laboratories. Seemingly independent of his employment, he was arrested and detained on serious charges, kidnapping, burglary, weapons. He was detained for two months. While he was arrested and detained, his mother went to his job and asked them to hold his job, indicating that he'd be back 
soon enough. The opinion closely scrutinizes the statutes and administrative codes that deal with unemployment claims and the defense that an employee voluntarily left the employment. In the statute, there's reference to incarceration serving as an serving as an equivalent to voluntarily leaving a job. There's also ample reference to fact-sensitive analysis based upon each case. So, if a person was arrested and detained for two days and didn't go to work, that doesn't have the look or feel of voluntarily leaving the job versus a person who was sentenced to a lengthy prison term. Of course, a Garden State Laboratories had to replace the defendant. I shouldn't say that. He never was really a defendant for long. Had to replace Haley. And uh, the unemployment board denied the unemployment compensation claim to Haley. The Supreme Court, Justice Solomon, analyzes the case and orders a remand back to the unemployment director to analyze this matter in a case-specific, fact-specific basis. Justice Albin wants to bisect that ruling and simply say, this case does not require a remand. Instead, Haley should be granted the unemployment benefits that he would have gotten, and here's why. I left this part out on purpose. He's arrested. He's detained. When it comes time for the indictment, the grand jury declines to indict him, and the state dismisses all charges. Without knowing all of the details, it seems it may have been a case of mistaken identity. So, under these facts, my gut is, my two cents is, this is not the incarcerated individual that you want to deprive unemployment benefits. It is certainly not a voluntary leaving, and the fact that the state dismissed the case ought to be the ultimate mitigating factor. Of course, all this happened way before the pandemic, but as we are talking, we're still in March 2021, we're still, I guess, a 13 months, 14 months, 15 months into the pandemic, and lots of people are unemployed, and they're coming and going back and forth to jobs, and getting laid off, and coming back, and getting unemployment benefits, and getting an enhanced benefit as well. This is very instructive, and a clash of policy and justice. One can understand a policy that would deprive people that are convicted of crimes and serving significant uh, jail time or prison time from unemployment benefits. Uh, Meanwhile, someone wrongly accused and knocked out of the workforce would be viewed entirely differently. There, the justice system needs to turn around and protect that person from the negative consequences of the arrest when, it would seem, the defendant was innocent of any charges. All right, I went a little longer than usual, but I had a few cases that warranted uh, real attention. Hopefully, you guys hung in for me, and certainly uh, the process of welcoming a new Supreme Court Justice, Rachel Wayner Apter, is worth a bunch of time, and we'll speak to that, I'm sure, soon. 
Don't forget the upcoming interviews with Nelson Johnson, Judge Nelson Johnson, Boardwalk Empire author, author of Battleground, New Jersey, a book I'm fascinated by involving the clash between our first post-1947 Chief Justice Arthur T. Vanderbilt and Jersey City Mayor Frank Haig. We'll be speaking to that book and the development of the modern New Jersey court system. Please don't forget to pass these shows around. You may have a case headed for the Supreme Court in the Supreme Court, just got out of the Supreme Court. You may have colleagues that are working on cases involving the Supreme Court. I would love to speak to those people on the record about their experiences, about their cases, and continue this chat about all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Please get in touch with me. It's easy to do. If you can't figure it out, you can figure it out. And uh, give me those ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time on The Bold Sidebar. Bye.